Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from New York City, Manhattan, 
and in particular the Intercontinental Barclay right here on, uh, on 48th Street. My next guest, I have to say I've, I've known him for a long time. I consider him a friend. I follow him wherever he goes. And, um, and in the world of the hotel business, I don't look at him as just a hotel manager. I look at him as an innovator. Um, and he's been ahead of the curve on so many things, especially in areas of the environment. Many, many years ago when he was running a hotel called The Willard in Washington, D.C., um, a hotel that, uh, if you want to understand about what lobbyist means, you talk about The Willard, uh, because that's where they used to hang out, in that lobby. Uh, he wrote a sustainability report that has become the benchmark, uh, basically the textbook, if you really want to find out about great sustainable hotel practices around the world, Hervé Houdre, how are you, sir? Good morning. Thank you and welcome. But I mean, really, I mean, there you were at a hotel. And, and, and by the way, the, 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 the Barclay shares something with the Willard because they're both historic hotels. Uh, they're both older buildings, which meant for some, maybe, for some people, oh, there are so many things you can't do to make it better. But you did. Um, you were doing stuff at, at the Willard with solar and with recycling. I mean, talk about that, because how old is that hotel, the Willard? The Willard, um, well, the Willard goes back to the um, early, actually, 19th century. Um, but the Willard, as we know it today, um, was uh, opened in 1910 and um, re renovated in uh, 1986. Right. And that the Willard was opened only about 16 years before this hotel. Yes. So, right, 1926. Yeah. But you were doing stuff, I mean, before you came on board, the Willard was not a model of economic, I mean, of, of environmental responsibility. Well, it did have economic responsibility. I but know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> as a business person, there's um, there's an equation that I really love, which is the triple bottom line, which really um, embodies actually or makes us really transform the um, the ideals of sustainable development into the business world, which is uh, economic prosperity, social responsibility, and environmental protection. And in the hotel industry, actually, we do have a, a set of very important responsibility because we, we use, we consume a lot of energy and we create a, a lot of waste as well. And yet at the time you did that report, and you're probably too modest to say this, but nobody else was doing it. You were really at the forefront of it. There are a lot of hotels that weren't even paying attention. Well, yes, some, some, some hotels already were doing a few things, but uh, what I made different was the fact that I really put together the triple bottom line. That you know, some people would, some hotels would do great things in terms of environment. Some hotels would do great things, great things in, in terms of community service, but no one w was really trying to embody the, the, the triple bottom line. So, give me some specific applications. Well, there was one that I really loved when I started it at the Willard, which was you know, when when you go to a hotel. Um, most of the time now nowadays, hotels uh, do suggest that you keep your, your linen and towels uh, for one or two days uh, in order to save um, deter detergent and uh, water use. And I never wanted to do it in, in my previous hotels because I always thought that it was a bit hypocritical, like it was mostly based on economy, you know, making, trying to save. And, and cynical guests like me would say the same thing. Yes, yeah. well, then, so I never did it. But when I arrived at the Willard, actually, they wanted to put that program in place. And I said, no, wait, let, let's find something else. So what we did was we did eventually, uh, after six months of research, we did put this, the, the, the system in place. But we were giving 50% of the savings that we were making to a charity, an organization that was cleaning the Anacostia River, which is very polluted in, in Washington, D.C. And to clean the, the Anacostia River, this organization was giving jobs to people from, from neighborhoods who did not have a job. So I really felt that was a great 
way of, of, of embodying the triple bottom line. We were making savings, we were helping the communities, and we were uh, providing jobs. And providing jobs as well as uh, taking care of the environment. So that's really a. But a then there was your, your then there was your energy use. Yes, we actually the the the, the Willard was the first hotel in 2006 to buy a renew, renewable energy credit. So. Um, I never really advertised it because I find it to be a bit greenwashing because, you know, it, it makes you feel good, but what, it, what is it, you know? But what was important was the fact that we were supporting renewable energy production, and we still do it here, but uh, at that time, it cost like almost $50,000 a year to, to the hotel. But at that time as well, in order to get the authorization from the ownership of the hotel, who was really pro-environment as well, I changed all the bulbs into... CFLs because there was there were no LEDs in 2006. I mean there were. But you changed all the light bulbs. We did change all the light bulbs uh, of the hotel, and then we saved $120,000 by showing that I was able to save $120,000 a year, and I was able to get the $50,000 extra to to pay a premium on the electricity. It's called push. let's do the math. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now here's the Barclay, which basically was closed for how long? Uh, for the past uh, 20 months, we uh, we closed from September. For a total renovation. An incredible renovation. Right. Yes, the hotel was. Totally and what were covered. you able to apply from your lessons at the Willard here? <coughs> well, we everything that we did was totally environmental friendly. Environmentally friendly. I mean, all the bulbs now in this hotel are LEDs. Um, the, um, all the windows have been changed to be not only soundproof but, but as well reflective. energy. Yeah, exactly, energy efficient. And what people don't realize, if you don't put reflective covering on the windows, you're going to lose another 25% in energy costs uh, because e of heat. Exactly, that's exactly yeah. it. And um, there's a, an, a very ambitious, very thorough waste management program as well. And the company really uh, supported what I was asking for. We we bought uh, two digesters, so now instead of uh, even composting the the food scraps, which are you know huge in a hotel like ours, and the food scraps are actually digested by two machines and they just go to the sewage, uh, right. so t transformed into gray water. And later on the show, we're talking to Jennifer Grove from Repeat Roses. You're even doing the flowers. Yes, we. Uh, I love uh, uh, Jennifer and uh, uh, her idea, and when she submitted it to me, I just fell in love with the idea. What we're doing is that we're suggesting our company, uh, the companies that uh, have banquets or catering in our, in our um, building and to to pay uh, for her services, but to feel good as well because all the flowers are being recycled and then uh, given to um, uh, charities or women's shelters or hospitals. It's a win-win. It's, it's a beautiful win-win, yes. So attention all hotel owners. If you find out that Hervé Udre is coming to your hotel, mm -hmm. get ready to get out your checkbook because you're going to be doing stuff you didn't think about, but in the long run it's going to pay off in terms of environmental responsibility. Exactly, and we're always trying to be very responsible economically as well. I love it. Between the flowers and the light bulbs, I think you got it covered. <laughs> well, there are many, many, many things. Right, but you made a start. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Next guest, a sort of regular on our show. He's back from time to time whenever we're in New York. You read about him, of course, in the New York Times. He was doing the frugal travel column for how many years, Seth? Five and a half years. Five and a half years, and he's still alive. He, he made it. Barely. Barely. Seth Kugel, of course. Um, 
But one of the things that, that you and I have talked about before, and I think it's, it's worth talking about again, is I go back to a quote from Morley Safer, who said, I trust citizen journalists as about as much as I tr- trust citizen surgeons. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's not a lot of vetting going on. Everybody's got a blog. Everybody's got a website. And the Federal Trade Commission notwithstanding, there are a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there on YouTube and on other, on, on other platforms that is essentially paid for. It's, it's an advertorial, isn't it, when it comes to travel? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a problem that stretches across a lot of travel writing as well, a lot of publications that take paid trips from places. And I just ha- happens to be that I'm very lucky to be able to write for the New York Times, which does not accept those things. I certainly understand the pressures on writers and, and video personalities to do this. But I also do a YouTube channel now. It's about New York. It's actually for Brazilian audience, believe it or not, which is one of the big international And we groups. talked about that. We, we did talk about yeah. it before. But we are under this pressure, and, and uh, we have to sort of decide, well, do you want... And, you know, uh, a restaurant or something like that or a, a chain of stores or something that tourists are going to go to, uh, how do you want it to appear in your show? And this is not traditional advertising, Oh, right? by the way, it, it, it happens on a lot of the online travel agencies, of course. On, on, on search. You know, there are people now that will say, if you're a hotel, let's say I'm looking for a hotel in New York, and they'll go to a hotelier and say, if you want to come up first in the search, here's how much it's going to cost you for preferential positioning. Well, I mean, Same thing in travel. I just wrote about this actually in the Times recently, uh, and one example was Booking.com, which uh, charges if the hotel pays a higher percentage uh, than they— Higher commission. A higher commission, I'm sorry, on all the, all the bookings. Then they get bumped up to the top of the list, and it's not very it doesn't clear. Mean, it doesn't mean they're a better hotel. In fact, the one example that, I, uh, that we came up with is the Hotel Pennsylvania, which is a— not, I know not that a hotel. High, not a high—generally considered not a high quality. I haven't stayed there. But it has very poor reviews on Booking, yet it comes out first, which or first or in the top 10 or in the top 20. On Booking.com. Yeah, depending on how you search and who you are. But um, they're part of their preferred customer, uh, the preferred properties program. And that's what it's called, the preferred properties program. But really, Booking prefers them because they pay a high rate. Gee, duh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that's a problem because for most of the people out there listening to this show, you have no way to figure out why they got there, although the inference would be that because that's because they're a better hotel or better reviewed. Yeah, and there's big differences. I mean, some of the sites are a little bit more transparent in how they do these things, so you'll see things marked ad, and I think we can all accept that that's part of the necessary process of doing business, as long as things are marked uh, as they should be. Well, in the previous segment, I, w- I was just talking about this hotel in Asbury Park, that when you check in, they give you a card with the TripAdvisor logo on it saying, if you write a great review, we're giving you a discount on your stay. Right. I mean, they're incentivizing their guests to lie. Right. Well, I mean, I think in, in, in a sense, TripAdvisor is, see, on the surface anyway, sort of one of the more transparent sites. However, this however. Whole, however, the things that the hotels are incentivized to do to get people to review them on TripAdvisor, um, as you said, are, are very shaky. And I, TripAdvisor would say, oh, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't support that. But they are. But you know, I'm implic- sorry, but implicitly they are, of well, course. And complicitly, because there's their logo on the card. They must know that it's on their front desk at the sure. hotel. It's in their literature. It's, in their, it's what's in the room. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this story to you, but I once stayed in a hotel in, in Florida. And uh, I don't say that I'm working for the New York Times, but a lot of times when I leave, I'll say, hey, I'm, I'm writing this article. Can I talk to the manager now so I don't have to come back later and tell you I'm, right. I'm writing the story? And the, the manager answered all my questions and sort of seemed relatively unfazed by my uh, presence. And then at the end, he's like, oh, my God, but you please leave us a review on TripAdvisor. <laughs> That's is, pretty funny. Which is, crazy. which is kind of crazy, but well, it's they're, true. They're, but you know what? It's sort of like they're conditioned to do it because apparently it works. And let's face it. I mean, today a mention in a, in a, in a big 
in the New York Times, for example, yeah. is not quite worth as much as it used to be because so many people are getting their advice and their uh, from, on other from platforms, other sure. platforms. But still, uh, there is a certain quid pro quo that I resent, uh, and believe me, I went I went ballistic when I saw that card. Sure. Ballistic. Sure. No, no, I completely, completely agree with you. And when in YouTube, it's almost it's almost harder because part of the thing you do on YouTube or on Instagram or on the social media is you're sort of expected to be an ambassador, quote unquote, to the brand, which is a term that just drives me insane because that just means you're <laughs> a, you're a, a, a you're a, doing an ad for them. Yeah. And um, you know they try to say, oh, we'd like to thank. Every, whenever you hear someone say something, I'd like to thank my friends at X brand. It's not obviously their friend, of course. They're they're being paid to, to do what they're exactly. doing. Exactly. And it's tough because uh, uh, people on YouTube are in a tough spot because that's the way a lot of the, the, the money comes well, in. Well, listen, I will tell you this in full disclosure. I've had guests on this show that we have banned from this show because they were here armed with message points that they had to get out from somebody who was paying them. Right. Every fifth word had to be the name of a certain hotel or a certain rental car or a certain travel service. And I finally said, enough. This is not what this show is all about. Right. I mean, there are clever ways to do it. Like I've seen uh, YouTube videos where it's clear there's a sponsor, but they're not talking directly about how great the sponsor is. They're having fun. There's, there's this is one thing for Oreos where these guys just sort of have this thing where they, they have a special gun where if they shoot you, you turn into a pile of Oreos. You know, it's not sort of saying Oreos are the greatest, but it's just kind of having fun with the brand. And I think that's moderately acceptable as long as it's not, you're not explicitly. Well, as long as they point the gun at me, I love Oreos. I mean, come on. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, you're working on a book. I am. Yeah. And uh, a lot of it has a little, it has a little bit to do with this as well. I'm trying to show how certain elements of the travel industry um, are not helping things in, in creating great travel opportunities for, for people. For example? Um, the uh, the points system, the, the, the hotel. and The frequent stay system. Frequ the, yeah, exactly. Because for I'll just give you a, an obvious example. If you're a, a business person and you've traveled a lot and you've built up all these points for whatever brand uh, right. it is, and I don't blame the brands for doing this, but then you end up, oh, I'm going to Nepal and Kathmandu. Where should I stay? Oh, I'll stay at the Hilton, the Marriott, the Sheraton, whatever. Right. When really you'd be better off staying at a local hotel. Uh, but, but, you, but I know why free. they're doing it. Well, it's of course, they, they want to redeem their, their, their points. Of course. And I, I'm not blaming either side in this because I understand why both sides, both the traveler and the hotel brand or whatever the brand is, would do it. But at the end of the day, you're going to a faraway place and staying in an international chain, which, which is fine. Uh, you know, but well, there might be other opportunities. No, you know what? I don't have a problem with that as long as you leave the room. Right. Okay. As long as you get out there and immerse yourself in the culture. Well, then let's talk about that, right? Certain ho hotels uh, will sort of just have endless opportunities within their own doors as opposed to pushing people well, out with tours. that's not a problem with hotels. That's a problem with American travelers <laughs> okay. who don't want to leave the resort. You know, they'll go to a beach resort in Jamaica right. or the Caribbean and never leave the resort. Right. And, 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 like, why would you do that? Well, I once was, I was at an uh, all-inclusive resort in the Dominican Republic, and I, I sort of asked, hey, I'd like to go out and walk around your town a little bit. And they and looked at you like you were crazy. Yeah, they said, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's very dangerous. Yeah. So, I mean, I just walked around. It's just a town. I walked like a half a mile outside of the door and had lunch. Oh, you were the guy. <laughs> <laughs> you were the guy. No, listen, most Americans, I'm going to say something that's going to sound so condescending, but I can back it up. Most Americans' definition of an adventure trip is to go in a, to an American-branded hotel in a foreign country, sit in your room and order a cheeseburger, and they've had an adventure. And it's right. not the way to do it. Right, and I, I guess I'm just saying that, uh, that the way things are structured these days, there's a lot of incentives to do that. It feels safe. Um, it feels safe and, and it's easy, and I think it 
if things were just a little bit harder, they'd put you outside to have a little bit more of an adventure. Well, if you want an adventure, go to YouTube and check out the Amigo Gringo. Seth Kugel, man. Right. Is it in English or Portuguese? Uh, it's in Portuguese, but if you click the CC button, you have perfect subtitles, and I know they're perfect because I write them. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. You know, I go back to the days, I, I said this earlier in the show, when I stayed here in the 70s, when uh, the magazine I worked for, Newsweek, which is right up the block in those days at 49th and Madison, Kept a uh, kept a block of rooms here, and it was a you know it was a dark hotel. Uh, it was a, the rooms were smaller, um, and they had a bar, right? And everybody at the bar was either on their fifth Jack Daniels or you know or they were drinking Chivas, right? Joining me now, who's <laughs> tell me how things have changed, is the director of beverage at the Intercontinental, Orion Berge. I mean. You started as a bartender, so you know how this thing has changed. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it's sort of the uh, the culture of the kitchen had to be turned toward the bar eventually, and people started thinking about, uh, well, all these great ingredients, I'm bringing them home, I'm preparing them myself, and I think it's sort of just a logical step that that would, that would move to the bar where uh, quality ingredients would, would start to be emphasized. But more than that, Tastes have changed. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, look, you're, I'm sure you're still serving a Manhattan every yeah. once in a while. It's never going to go out of style. Right. But in terms of the number of Manhattans you're serving, not that many. Uh, we, I mean, I, I, not, not as many. You're right. I yeah. mean, and particularly people are looking for, when they do order a Manhattan, they want, uh, they want a boutique vermouth and they want specialty bitters. And so they, like they walk in armed and dangerous. I mean, they walk in, they know exactly the brand. Nobody orders, nobody orders a martini anymore. They, they tell you the brand they want. I mean, consumers are so much more educated across the board. No, they think they're more educated. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Sometimes, no, because sometimes you have to educate them. Uh, yeah, I mean, people come to the bar looking to be educated, too. They want to try new things. Uh, they know that they, they don't have... 88 gins at their disposal. And, and but they you come, do. And I do. And uh, they come here. See, and I'm, I'm a single malt guy. And if I go to a bar that's got 90 single malts, I'm mm -hmm. going to be at the bar longer because I want to talk. I want to engage the bartender to find out what I don't know. Mm -hmm. Are they doing that now with the gin parlor here? Oh, for sure. I spend a lot of time behind that bar. How many people even knew there were 88 brands of gin? Uh, people are always surprised by how many gins there are. I am. Always. And um, where, where does most of it come from? You know, it comes from, it comes from all over. Uh, there's there's a ton of new sort of boutique distilleries in, in the Americas, uh, but London uh, has 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 many many, um, uh, but really all over the world. I have gins from Australia. I have gins from Germany. Um, I have gins from South America. But so, they all start with the basic ingredients. Well, essentially, gin is is a neutral spirit that's distilled with juniper, and then the sky's the limit. You can make it whatever you want. I call it. It's interesting vodka is what, it, is well, what gin is. Look, in the last 15 years, every vodka has to be flavored, you know, or at least it seems that way. Are it, they doing the same thing with gin? Uh, I mean, vodkas are flavored in, in a way that is a lot of them are artificially flavored. Um, gin, uh, by definition, has to be distilled. So all the botanicals uh, are, are put in and they're all natural. 
and I think that's a big difference. And I think uh, I think it's got a much higher credibility than like a, a flavored vodka. I won't besmirch any particular brands or anything, but they're. Well, we we besmirch all the time <laughs> here. It's not a problem. I mean, there's Fruit Loop flavored vodkas, and no, you know they're not distilling wait, 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 with Fruit Loops. Are you serious? I'm serious. There's a Fruit Loop flavored vodka. I wish I was. I wish I was lying, <laughs> but it's it's the truth. Okay, please don't tell me there's a Captain Crunch vodka. There probably is. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's scary. All right, but what's your most interesting gin? Uh, I mean, I I really like the uh, the Monkey Forty Seven. Uh, that the, alone gets me interested. Yeah. I have it, no idea why, but it's yeah. it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful gin. Uh, it's um, it's much more fruit forward. Uh, it's it's principal botanical is lingonberry. Um, all all gins have to have juniper, but this one is is light. It's uh, it's fruity. It pairs with with a ton. It makes a great gimlet. Uh, you can sip it neat. It's it's really very interesting. Now I know bartenders that if somebody walks in and orders a rum and coke, they go really. Right? I, you know what? I love making a rum and coke. It takes two seconds. That's and why you it, love it. Yeah. <laughs> it keep, I mean, you have to sell some. If you were doing all five-step cocktails, right. you'd, you'd never be able to make enough drinks for okay. everybody. What's your most sophisticated gin, then? Uh, the most sophisticated. Or the way to serve it? The way to serve it? I mean, I love, I love a Martinez. I like it with an old Tom, uh, which is uh, it's essentially a, a London dry style with a higher sugar content. Uh, and it's kind of where the Martini and Manhattan families branch off. So there's sweet vermouth, dry vermouth, bitters. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest, when I first heard what she was doing, it's one of those things where you go, why? Why didn't somebody else think of that? I mean, I was amazed that, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, what a great idea this is. Uh, and it doesn't just apply here to New York. It's essentially worldwide when you think about it. Uh, and I'm going to let her explain it because it just makes so much sense. And if you're listening to the show, whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, somewhere along the line, this might actually impact you in, in a very positive way. My next guest, Jennifer Grove, the CEO and founder of something called Repeat Roses. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. So give me an idea of what that means. <laughs> Certainly. So Repeat Roses is, as you mentioned, we're a problem solver. We basically go in at the end of a big event. Or a, a wedding. wedding and a, uh, a gala. Right. Wherever there are celebrations with flowers. A lot of those things take places at hotels. Absolutely. Hotels are filled with gorgeous ballrooms and meeting centers that are filled with people, flowers, and food. And, of course, when the event's over, what happens to the flowers? And, yeah, there are some people who always want to take home the centerpiece. I get that. (laughs) I've been one of those. But there's a whole lot more flowers than just that. Oh, absolutely. It's the bar arrangements. It's the escort card tables. It's the floral installations all over the, the walls. Everywhere where you walk in, there's floral decor. And what happens to that to those decorations? Hmm. At the end of the night, normally they're thrown <laughs> they're thrown away. Uh, all the party people leave, and everything gets broken down, and the flowers get tossed. That's where you come in. That's where we come in. We pick up all of the flowers, so 
anything that otherwise would end up in the trash, they get saved, they get rescued, and we repurpose them so that we can pay it forward in the community and bring all these flowers to other people who might not otherwise have a chance to enjoy flowers. So in order to make that happen, you had to educate a lot of people that it was a good idea, that it wasn't going to cost them a lot of money, that you were actually doing everybody a favor. It was a win-win. Oh, absolutely. And, and that starts right here at the hotel level. I mean, the Barclay here, I, I still call it the Barclay, even though it's <laughs> called the Intercontinental. You partnered with them. That's one of your hotels. Exactly. So every premier wedding and corporate event at the Barclay, Repeat Roses is included in the service. And that does a couple of different things. It means that we're removing a lot of waste from the hotel property. It means that we're adding a value for the client because then they know that their flowers are going to get repurposed into the world and spread a little joy to people in the New York community. And then what's really interesting about Repeat Roses is we go back to the nonprofits that we make these deliveries to and we collect all the waste and it gets composted. So you got the entire cycle covered. It, we closed the loop. But there was a point at, when you were starting this, you really had to educate people that it was a good idea because they'd not done that before. Correct. Mo most people don't think about, oh, when I get engaged, what am I going to do with my flowers or the trash well, hopefully the most people the think they're only going to get engaged <laughs> once. Right. <laughs> but the, the people who really understood that this was a problem are the hotels the event planners, the florists, the people who see the behind the scenes, they recognize. So yes, we had to go around and really educate people and inspire people that this is the right thing to do. It's a feel good. And it's also something that protects the planet. Now, is there a cost involved for the hotels? Is there a cost involved for the nonprofits? There's not a cost involved for the hotels. All we ask is that they include us in their contracts and they help promote us. There's a fee that we apply to the client's uh, event package, you could say, because there's a service fee involved for, for having people come and pick up the flowers at midnight or 3 a.m., whenever the party ends. But other than that, it's still a win-win because everybody ends up benefiting from it, including the environment. The, the environment, the hotel, the client, because... After we make the donation to the nonprofit organizations, they receive a donation acknowledgement letter, which means they get a tax return or a tax deduction. You thought of everything. <laughs> well, it's a nice way to get a little uh, return on your floral investment. And what we're talking about is that, you know, the Schmidlap wedding happens, right? <laughs> and it, all of a sudden at 1130 at night, when everybody's gone home and the drunks are all gone, <laughs> right? There are, there's drinking involved at weddings. Just a little. Just a little. Um, you guys show up, take all the stuff. Mm -hmm. And you already, you, you're pre-designating the people you're delivering to. It's women's shelters, Ronald McDonald House, who else? Uh, absolutely. We're, we're like matchmakers. So we look at a floral plan and we say, where are these flowers going to go? Are they going to go to Hospital? a pediatric right. cancer treatment center? Are they going to go to a women's shelter, nursing homes, hospice care facilities? There's so many people that can benefit from the joy of flowers. And these, these flowers have so much life and beauty in them. There's no reason to throw them out after being enjoyed for three hours. Wow. And... I'm assuming your base is just expanding now. We started out in New York, where we're headquartered, and we've done it all up and down the East Coast and all across the country. Now, you're partnered here with the Intercontinental of Barclay. Any other hotels on board? Uh, we're in the beginning conversations with several hotels here in New York and across the country. Is there a downside to this? I mean, is there, why would somebody not say immediately yes? Exactly. What, what's your other option? You could throw them out. Yeah, yeah you could throw them out. I mean, so, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like a tough argument to make. Correct. And in this day and age, most of the big weddings that are being hosted in hotels, the, the uh, containers are rented by the florist. So the florist has to come up and pick up their container. Either way. So a, a guest at a wedding is not going to hop in their Uber. Hello? Uh, this is Mr. Uh, 
this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. Every time I get into this subject, I'm staggered by the number that I'm talking about, about the amount of food waste in this country, about what ends up in landfills. That's just absolutely edible food that just goes to waste. And there's an organization here in New York that's been around over 30 years that does an amazing job. But I'm going to give you one number that's just as staggering. Nearly 1.4 million New Yorkers struggle to put food on their tables every single day day. And that includes 420,000 children. That is just, and, and by the way, and New York is not alone in this. It's every city, every community. And what does is, what is City Harvest do? They fix that problem. Joining me now, the, uh, the manager of food sourcing at City Harvest, Matt Lum, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Peter. How are you doing? Good. I mean, you heard my introduction. You know these numbers better than anybody. Um, take a hotel like the Intercontinental. They are producing so much food every day and so much food that doesn't get used. That's where you guys come in. Yep. Uh, the Intercontinental is one of over 2,500 food donors that we have around the city. 2,500? 2,500 food donors. And see, now that's the other thing. Walk down any street in New York City, there are at least 18 restaurants on that street. I mean, it, people just start counting. It's outrageous, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And every one of them has stuff they don't use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, the Intercontinental, since 2009, they've donated over 60,000 pounds of food, and that's enough to feed 164 families for a year. Wow. Now, you multiply that by the number of hotels and restaurants you're working with, that's where we come up to all the people that need the help, that, that are actually getting the help. Exactly. Yeah. This year, we are going to rescue and deliver 55 million pounds of food, and that gets distributed to soup kitchens and food pantries across the five boroughs. Now, you've been around, what, 34 years? <laughs> yes. City Harvest has been around for 34 years. Okay. Not you. How old are you? <laughs> Sorry. How old are you? I'm 25. Okay. I have socks older than you, so get out. But... Bottom line is, how many trucks are you... I mean, it's a big operation. It's, yeah. it's not just like one guy in a truck. No, we have 22 trucks. And and they're going all the time. They're they're going Monday through Sunday, seven days a week. And they deliver to 500 soup kitchens and food pantries and other community food programs around the city. I guess the point that I'm trying to do in terms of a takeaway here is if you're staying at a hotel or eating at a restaurant, it would be within your responsibility to act in the following way, to ask the owner of that restaurant or the operator of that hotel, are they participating in this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's... I mean, what's the downside of participating? I can't understand what there would be. I, I, I wouldn't be able to, to tell you either. I mean, the, the answers that I usually receive are, you know, there's spacing issues, they don't have the staff, uh, excuses like that or reasons like that. Yeah, but listen, the same amount of energy that it takes to take the, the food that's not being used and hauling it out to a garbage truck, why not just put it on your truck? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, we... Myself and the rest of the food sourcing team, we're, we're out there, we're trying to find new food donors, um, and, we're, and we're working to maintain the relationships we already have. Now, you're a volunteer organization. Uh, I am not a volunteer, but we do have, we recruit many volunteers. And that's, so somebody listening to the show, if they want to volunteer, they can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we have our uh, facility in Long Island City, Queens. We host many volunteer events. We also do uh, food show rescues, such as the fancy food show at the Javits Center every summer. We recruit. Yeah, that's the food I want. Oh, yeah. That's the food I want. That's the fancy food. Have the truck drive over to me. That's 
Exactly. Gravlock, sure, bring it over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Caviar, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, some of that chorizo. Oh, my God. See? See? Yeah. All right. But that's not going to me and it's not going to you. It's going to the people who really need it. Mm-hmm. It's going to that nearly 1.4 million New, York, New Yorkers that are hungry that you mentioned earlier. Well, let's talk about specific ways to do it. Somebody listening to the show, how can they volunteer? So they can, let's say they're hosting an event at the Intercontinental Barclay. How convenient. Uh, they can tell the caterer hey, can you keep the food aside so that it is still food safe to donate uh, rather than putting out every portion out at once? Um, they can also host a food drive and donate the food to their local food rescue organization. And they can also, of course, volunteer at their local food rescue organization. So they can also work on the trucks and deliver the food? Uh, not exactly. No? Um, that, that, that would be the driver okay. uh, driving, driving the truck and delivering the food. Uh, they can work at our facility doing repacks. So they can wow. they can repack the like large bulk bins of food into smaller portions. That's easier to distribute. More manageable, of course. More manageable, yeah. Matt, what's the website? Cityharvest.org. Can't get easier than that. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Allied radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? Joining me now, the executive chef here at the Intercontinental, uh, Willis Lahad. Do you agree with what I'm saying, that it's an overused, crazy term? I agree 100%. Uh, the farm-to-table concept I love is it. A, it's a farm-to-table movement. What are you talking about? Yeah, there's no movement. No. I mean, it, it moved and it happened, and that was centuries ago. Yeah. But uh, it's a complete fallacy. See, um, what I like is farm-to-farm table. That way I can go out to the farm and eat it out there. But That's the only way you can do it. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. So, so everybody says, oh, oh, it's, I love how menus at restaurants now try to tell you a story about each dish. Oh, it came on a truck driven by Roy. It was like, thanks. Okay, what is it? You know, right? Do you know Roy? No, do you, but you know Roy. I do know Roy, and I know <laughs> where Roy fishes, and, and that's my goal. But you see, that's, that's what you should be doing as, as an executive chef here, because you have to know not just where it comes from, but who's doing it. Correct. Correct. And, and take care of him. I mean, I know Roy, the delivery driver. I know Roy, the fisherman. And I know Roy, the farmer. But I would Are never they all named Roy? I got a problem with that. Do you? <laughs> they wear labels on their, on their jackets. Hi, I'm Roy. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, I mean, the, the whole concept is, is wrong. In midtown Manhattan and in anywhere in a, in a, in a central area of the city, what we have is an opportunity to be responsible, to be stewards of the environment, to be forward thinkers, but we don't have the opportunity to be farm to table. We don't have a farm outside, and even if I grew the herbs that I plan to grow up on the roof and the bees that I plan to grow or harvest you know, the honey from up on the roof, I don't have the opportunity to do everything farm to table. So it's a complete fallacy, um, and I, I re- reject the whole, the whole concept. But, um, but yet, it's, everybody talks about that. But if you know who your growers are, if you know who the farmers are, and you have conversations with them, then next thing you know, what you get is really what you need. And I have conversations on Monday evening for what I receive on Tuesday morning. I have conversations uh, with people in Montauk that get me fish the next day. I have conversations not, I mean, much less. I reject conversations um, from Hawaii Sorry for banging. Um, <laughs> but I get Hawaiian fish fishermen that call me, and I say, no, I, I don't, I'm not interested because I want to support 
something that's much more local, that's something that's much more approachable and much more New York. Quintessential so New York okay, is very so, important to okay, me. Okay, you've opened the door now. So what you're basically telling me is mahi-mahi is not on the menu. Correct. <laughs> Thank God. Correct. <laughs> it's I a great fish. I know, but I, 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 I'm over mahi-mahi. I'm sorry. No, but yeah. I ate the hell out of it in, yeah. in Florida. Yeah. I mean, I lived in Florida for many years, and yeah. it was it's a great fish. Kingfish, grouper, wonderful fish. Snapper over fish now. I don't okay. serve it. So you got flounder on the menu. I have I have fluke. I well, have fluke. Okay, cake. okay. I'll get same deal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you got tuna. Uh, no tuna. No tuna. No tuna. Why? I'm probably the first hotel in New York to stop tuna tartare, tuna sashimi. Uh, it's overfished. Wow. So you follow those. The, you follow the card. The Monterey Seafood Guide. Yeah. Completely. A hundred percent. I have it on my phone. I'll show you. Unbelievable. So there are things you're just not going to put on the menu. Uh, we don't put it on the menu for 704 rooms in room service. We don't put it on the menu for banquets. And as a matter of fact, I would like to upcharge people who want to serve it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. I always ask this question, so i got to ask you, too. Because you came on board when the hotel reopened. Correct. Right? Is there something you put on your menu that you thought everybody's going to love this and it tanked? And then, conversely, is there something you put on your menu saying, do I have to put this on the menu? And everybody wanted it. Um, the surprising thing that came out of the menu development through here um, was, I would say, the I, I put a bunch of vegetarian dishes that I thought would just only be approachable to a certain amount of right. people. I put them on. Do you the ever notice that people who order vegetarian dishes always whisper? Do you ever notice that? I like the kale. Can I have the kale? I don't whisper about anything. <laughs> but I'm They're like escape librarians. I'm telling you. Like, I like the kale. Like, if you want to order kale, just speak it. I no, I think it. they should be very proud of ordering the kale. Okay, Although fine, fine. kale, I, I know. think, I'm, is, I'm, I'm, is... I've had it with kale. I'm sorry. Trailing off. Oh, yeah. um, I think cauliflower is on the On, uh, the, on the upswing? Okay. Yeah. Um, which is what I was going to talk about, is I put a, a dish on for the in-room dining menu, and there's 704 rooms, and I put a cauliflower dish with local feta from Salvatore in Brooklyn, and I thought this was never, ever going to sell. And I just put it on as a token item, and it sells every night to almost every room. I, w I was shocked. And the, and the dish that tanked? The dish that tanked was I had to put on, uh, what did I want to put on? I put on a monkfish because I thought, oh, everybody's really going to be interested in the poor man's lobster and the whole story of New York. Yeah. And no. not a single person ordered monkfish. So the monkfish got 86th. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.